Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. One of the finest preachers to ever stand behind the sacred desk was the late Robert England. This sermon was preached at God's Bible School Fall Revival in 1994 in Cincinnati, Ohio, and he titles this sermon, We Need a Revival. I trust you will open up your heart and let God speak to you as Robert England preaches this excellent message. About 31 or 32 years ago, when I was sitting out where you're sitting tonight, I remember an old-fashioned pre-Methodist evangelist that came to God's Bible School by the name of J. Clyde Fluelling to preach in the revival. Brother Fluelling's delivery was different than most of the evangelists that we heard. He wasn't a real dynamic speaker, and often it just seemed like he was speaking to us as a father would speak to his children in the early part of the revival, and I'll never forget as we came to the close of the Saturday night service uh, in a 10-day meeting, he said, don't worry about the altar call, we just want you to be happy and blessed. And I thought to myself, I've never heard it quite like that before, but Brother Fluelling knew that if we were revived, there would be some happiness and blessing, and that would spill over, and God would do his work, and he would give us victory, and and it wasn't long until God was just moving on every hand and people were seeking the Lord. Brother Fluelling said that he liked to pray and think ahead of services. I wonder what God is going to do tonight. That's a good way to come to church, isn't it? I wonder what God is going to do in this revival. It's good to have an expectancy. And the Lord has already been working and meeting with us. What a wonderful chapel we had today. Let's Let's uh, determine we're just going to mind the Lord and let him have his way throughout the revival. I'm reading tonight from Psalm 85. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 85. To change your position for a little while, please stand with me for the reading of the scripture, Psalm 85. And I would like you to participate, if you will, in the reading of the word. I'll read the first verse, and then uh, you'll read the second, and we'll just alternate and read responsibly. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, Lord, our and our 
Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Righteousness shall go before him. And shall set us in the way of his steps. Shall we bow our heads again, please? I'm going to ask Dr. Powell if he'll come pray for this part of the service, please. Our Heavenly Father, we pray now that you will anoint your servant as he delivers the message that you've laid on his heart. We ask you, Lord, that you will touch his mind and help him to think. Touch his tongue and help him to preach under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Touch his heart, may it be on fire, may and touch his spirit, may it be free. Get glory and honor to thy name. Make thy truth as laid in the rock forever and as a nail in a sure place. And we'll give thee praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother Powell. The 85th division of the Psalms has been fittingly called the Revival Psalm. It appears to have been written just soon after the return of Judah from Babylonian captivity. The blessings and the dealings of the Lord God with Israel had indeed been marvelous. You'll remember that God called a man by the name of Abram, later changing his name to Abraham. He called him out of his home country, a heathen land. He called him to depart from his relatives, his kindred, and separated him from his father's house that he might lead him into the land of promise. God spoke to Abram and said, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and thou shalt be a blessing. God's order has never changed. It's the same today. If we are to be a blessing to anyone, we must first be blessed. God said, I will bless thee, and thou shalt be a blessing. I like to get blessed, don't you? And if I'm not getting blessed in my own heart, I like to get near somebody that is getting blessed so that I can at least pick up the overflow. God was gracious to Abraham. And you'll recall that when he and his wife Sarah were in advanced years, God performed a miracle and gave them a little baby, Isaac. Through Isaac came Jacob, and through Jacob, along with Joseph's two sons, came the twelve tribes of Israel. Jacob thought that his beloved son Joseph had been slain as just a young man, probably 17 or 18 years of age. His other sons had been very cruel to Joseph, and while Jacob mourned and thought that his son had been killed by a beast or by someone, in his old years he was finally given the message that Joseph was alive and that he was in Egypt 
in a high position just under the Pharaoh. And that Joseph was asking his father to come down and dwell with him in Goshen. Oh, what a day it was. And Joseph uh, was able to receive not only his father, but his brothers and their families. And when Jacob passed on, his posterity stayed in Egypt. They were there for some 400 years and all went rather well. Then there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And we are told that the cruel taskmasters were indeed uh, hard upon the children of Israel, made it extremely hard until they cried out for help and deliverance. And God raised up Moses to lead them out from the Egyptian bondage and to lead them back into the land of promise. But you'll recall Moses disobeyed God on a given occasion and the Lord said you cannot lead them into the land now. He allowed Moses to climb the high mount on the east side of Jordan and to view the land but he could not lead them in. The task was given to Joshua to lead them across the Jordan when God divided it and then to subdue the land. Following the death of Joshua again and again the Lord raised up judges in times of crises. When Israel would get into trouble, they would cry to God for help and he would send a judge. Uh, they so ruled over a period of three to four centuries. And then the day came when the children of Israel looked around at surrounding nations and peoples and they said, we would like to be like other people. We would like to have a king to rule over us. God had intended that he should be their king and that they should be submissive to him. But they continually clamored for a king. Samuel warned them that they would pay dearly to have a king over them. They would pay in taxes. They would pay in hard labor. They would pay in the lives of their young people on the battlefield. But they insisted on a king. And my friends, if we insist long enough, we can convince God to do for us what we ask him. But again and again in scripture, when Israel insisted on her will instead of God's will, he would allow them what they wanted, but he sent leanness to their own soul. And so God gave them a king. Miss Peabody used to tell us here at GBS that God gave Israel the best man he had in all Israel. Not only did Saul, the son of Kish, stand head and shoulders above other men physically, he was a tall and a noble man of God. He really loved the Lord in the early part of his kingship. But how tragic that he turned finally away from God. He did not wholly follow the Lord. And at the end of his 40-year reign, he came to a tragic suicidal death. God then raised up David, a man after his own heart, and he too had a long reign, a combined total of some 40 years. Following David was his son Solomon, who began well but ended so tragically. And you'll remember that after Solomon, his son Rehoboam ascended the throne. The people came to Rehoboam as a young king, and they said to him, The yoke that your father put upon us is very heavy. 
If you can lighten it for us, we will be grateful and we'll follow you and be your servants. The young king went to the older men, the seasoned, mature counselors, and they said, Rehoboam, listen to the people. Listen to their plea and uh, heed what they're asking you to do. The yoke seems so unbearable, so heavy. Lighten the taxes. Make it easier on the people and they'll follow you forever. They'll be your servants. But Rehoboam went over to talk to the young people that he grew up with, the young men. And it's not to say young people don't have good ideas, but he forsook the counsel of the older men and he listened to the younger ones. They said, go back to the people and tell them that if your father was hard, it's going to be much tougher under your reign. He accepted the counsel, went back and told them that if his father had used whips uh, to, to punish them, he would be using scorpions. The people were utterly shattered. They were expecting mercy, but they didn't receive it. They broke away from Rehoboam and followed Jeroboam. And he took ten of the northern tribes and set up the golden calves way up at Dan and down at Bethel to keep the people at home, to keep them from going back to Jerusalem. But my dear friend, their hearts were turned away from God, turned to idol gods. And the day came when the Lord saw the cup of their iniquity was full. And he sent judgment, allowing the cruel Assyrians to sweep down and carry Israel into Assyrian captivity. A little over a century later, he allowed the Babylonians to sweep into Jerusalem, for the southern kingdom too had turned away from God. They turned to their own gods, to idol gods, and they were too taken into captivity. Well, my dear friend, the word of God through the prophet Jeremiah was clear. The time of captivity would be limited to 70 years. And it's good to know that God keeps his word. At the end of a 70-year period, God raised up the Medo-Persians who defeated the Babylonians. And Cyrus was stirred up of God to proclaim liberty to the exiles in Babylon. He said, go back home and build again the temple of your God. And so a number of the people headed back home. Can't you see them in your mind's eye trekking up through that fertile crescent, making their way back down into the land of promise, the land of Israel. But as they made their way near to Jerusalem, I think they may have come along the beautiful slopes of the Mount of Olives. And there would have been a panoramic view of Jerusalem as they looked over in to the city. There it lay in ruins. The temple had been burned. The city had been destroyed. The gates were broken down and burned. The wall had been torn down. And thus with the joy that they anticipated returning was a mixture of sorrow with it. They began their work sometime after returning. The men laid the foundation to build the new temple about two years from the time captivity ended. But for 14 long years all they had was the footer they only had the foundation they didn't go up with the walls or the completion of the building there were probably at least three reasons why they didn't continue the building 
For one thing, the Samaritans opposed this work. They tried to hinder. They made fun. They ridiculed. And the children of Israel began to back off. And then too, the children of Judah had to build their own houses. They needed homes to live in. There was nothing wrong with that. But they became so engrossed in their own needs that they forgot the temple of God until God stirred up Haggai and Zechariah and they exhorted the people to finish the temple to get it done. But when the people got engrossed in their own building, they soon became indifferent to the work of God. My friend, if ever in the history of Israel there was need of revival, it was when they returned home from Babylonian captivity. And that's the occasion of my text tonight. Yes, revival was sorely needed if God was to be glorified and if they were to be what God wanted them to be. I'm thankful tonight that in our walk with God, He desires from time to time to come and revive us again. I like the meaning of revival. I've had a deep interest in it for a number of years. In fact, I think if there's anything that I've been interested in and that God has put on my heart in the last 14 or 15 years, it's revival. Now, I like evangelism, but evangelism isn't the same as revival. Evangelism is an outreach for the lost and I believe we ought to be deeply interested in that but it's possible to have evangelistic efforts and never have revival there's a lot of evangelism going on today in the church world without revival you can have evangelism without revival and I mean genuine outpouring of the Holy Ghost but you can't have revival without evangelism just as sure as God's people are revived there's going to be a evangelism. You don't need preachers. If you have revival, there's going to be an outreach. Thank God forever. Revival means renewed interest after a period of indifference or decline. Israel had become indifferent. There had been a period of decline and now they needed revival. It involves an awakening, a spiritual awakening out of slumber and out of sleepiness. And who among us would not Confess, we live in a day when it's easy to be sleepy and drowsy, spiritually speaking. Revival, as Mr. Finney would define it, is simply a renewal of the first love of a Christian. I like that, a renewal of our first love. To revive is to ignite anew, it's to arouse again, it's to rekindle the divine flame of love within our heart. Thank God forever. My friend, I believe that the very prayer of the children of Israel back prior to the writing of this text and the time of my scripture is so fitting for our fall revival. I would bring your attention again to verse 6 that we have just read. Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? My text suggests I think, first of all, the poverty or the privation of revival. By that I mean the lack of revival, the need for revival, the want of revival. This is seen in the very prayer itself. We really don't pray for what we have, do we? But we praise God for what we have and we pray for what we don't have. 
The children of Israel needed revival and they were praying for that. Now let me encourage you tonight. There's nothing wrong with praying for revival. It's a good thing to do. And those of us who love the Lord and claim to know him tonight need revival, don't we? We need to be revived again. Now the fact is I've met some people that I think didn't want to hear a lot about revival. They thought because they were saved and sanctified they had reached kind of an altar ultimate uh, plane or a level, but I tell you what, the best people I've ever met in the holiness movement have been those who've continually cried and hungered after more of God, and the best people I've ever met, Rob French and J. Wesley Adcock and their kind would say again and again, we need revival, we need a rekindling of God's fire within our hearts. So there's nothing wrong, it's not a bad thing to be a candidate for revival, The fact is, we're not on fire very much in these days. I'll slow down, let you have time to say amen. We're really not on fire very much these days. Someone got up in chapel today and said he met uh, someone in the city of Cincinnati who said back 30 years ago in the 50s and in the 60s, a businessman downtown, he said, why, God's Bible school, the students are known to be on fire up there. Wow, that's a good commendation. That's a wonderful kind of, of comment to make about students. But the fact is, if we're all honest, nobody is really overly on fire. Might as well say amen. I didn't say you weren't spiritual. I heard of an evangelist years ago who said he had so much fire nobody was calling him for a revival. Someone else said you've got the wrong kind of fire then. If you've got the right kind of fire, God is going to open door after door for you. But the fact of the matter is we might as well just admit it. We're a rather drowsy, sleepy, slumbering, lukewarm people. We might as well just admit it because we're not going to make any progress if we, we think we've got everything we need. Amen. Nothing wrong, nothing wrong at all to say, Lord, I need to be revived. The psalmist said, Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Habakkuk sensed the same need in his day. He was a man of God, but he prayed, Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In wrath, remember mercy. Oh, my friend, we need revival. Vance Havner once said that the church in this 20th century has become so subnormal that if it ever comes back up to the standard of the New Testament, many people will look on in amazement and they'll say it's abnormal. To say it another way, I think we have moved so far into left field that if we ever begin to move back toward a balance, toward center field, many people will put us clear over in the right field bleachers. And say we're fanatical. If you know anything about the history of revival at all, anyone who has become a participant in revival has had the possibility of being accused of being a little bit mentally off. Evan Roberts had all kinds of stories written in the newspaper about him. In that great revival, the Welsh revival, suggesting it was a little bit mentally off. Could that be why some people aren't overly anxious to have revival? 
They don't want anyone to think they are anything less than totally sound. My friend, Charles Finney, the great revivalist of more than a century ago, said there were several reasons why the church needed revival in his day. And I believe they're applicable today. Mr. Finney said the church is in need of revival when there is a lack of brotherly love and Christian confidence among professors of religion. We need revival, he said, when there's a lack of love, brotherly love, and Christian confidence. My friends, does the world look on us? Does the world look upon our churches and see the same love manifested among us that it did among the early church? Oh, they looked on again and again and they said how they love one another. What a commentary. Jesus said, by this shall all men know ye are my disciples. What is the one thing that Jesus said is the indisputable evidence of being a disciple of the Lord? By this one thing shall all men know that ye are my disciples. Well, I've met some people that I think would like to have said if we could get everybody to wear a black suit and a black necktie among the men. The same cut of dress and the same color of dress among the women. I think there are some people that think that could be the greatest evidence to an unbelieving world. Hello? Now, I'm not against black suits and black neckties. There are some people, I think, that believe if we could get everybody to get the same manual and agree on every doctrinal position, every variant of it that probably this would be great evidence. But hear me, Jesus said, by this shall all men, that sounds like outsiders, doesn't it? By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love. If ye have love one to another. And you don't have to try to define love. People know when you love them. And they know when you don't love them. You don't give cold shoulders and say, that's just your type of love. Oh, no. I was holding a revival meeting some years ago in a certain state a long way from here. I thought, I thought there was going to be a civil war at the very outset of the revival. The very first service, right during the altar service, I soon heard some voices that didn't sound like men loving each other. And I looked up, and I saw men pointing fingers at each other. Wow. <laughs> I had at least one eye open. Wonder what in the world was going on. But it wasn't too long into the revival that God began speaking to one of those men that had been pointing fingers. And he got... He got digging, and God got putting his finger on some things, and he really humbled himself. He got up one night, and I think this is the way he expressed it. He said, I've traded in a whole, a whole truckload of misunderstanding for love. I like that. <laughs> We're not going to understand everybody. We're all unique, and we all have our blind spots, but we can love everybody. We can love when we don't understand 
Thank God. Peter said it like this. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Friend, if we fail to keep our love burning one toward another, it's not going to be long until we become fault finders. And you can't have revival if you're going around finding fault. You don't have to agree with everyone, but you don't have to be a fault finder. Oh, was there ever any question as to whether Jesus loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha? No, he manifested it so strongly. And when they called him and said, Lord, he whom you love is dead, Jesus walked out to the sepulcher. He couldn't hold back his tears. He began weeping. And the Jews looked on and they said, Behold, how he loved him. Thank God for love. Friend, if our love is running low toward our fellow men, we need revival. Mr. Finney said the church is in need of revival also when there are dissensions and jealousies and evil speaking among professors of religion. The Bible exhorts us to avoid contentions. And the writer of Proverbs said, He that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife. The troublemaker, the wise writer wrote, is a proud person, stirring up strife. Why, even, even the apostles, the disciples, got into some strife once in a while. Remember one day they, they held, hung way back from Jesus. They didn't want him to hear what they were talking about. And later he said, what was it that you were contending about, striving about in the way? They really didn't want to tell him. But the scripture says that they were striving among themselves about a very deep theological matter. They wanted to know who among them was the greatest. Wow. Does that still happen? Sure it does. A few years ago when I was teaching full time... I remember one day in a mom white room, classroom, I don't know what course it was, probably a Bible class. We must have been dealing something about servanthood or striving. And I said to my class, I had a very large class. This could be at any Bible school, but it just happened that I was here. And I raised a question or two or three or four. I said to my class, now I don't have a lot of time with my busy schedule to sit, sit up around the uh, fish pond on the benches to chat as much as I'd like to do it. But I said, I would just imagine with all the quartets, and back then we had about three quartets, Brother Wolf, that was something. Hard to get one now, isn't it? We had about three quartets back then. And I said, I just have an idea that on our campus there might be a fair amount of discussion about which quartet is really the greatest. Now, I couldn't get some kids to nod their head for anything, but you ought to have seen the bobbing heads that day. Boy, they were really bobbing. And I said, I don't know. We've got a wonderful music department around here. I've not talked to anybody, and I really don't know. But with all of the good soloists that we have, I wouldn't be surprised there's a fair amount of discussion about who is really the best soloist. You ought to have seen the heads going. I didn't ask anybody to do it. And I said, I wouldn't be surprised because we have a good ministerial department around here that there is even an amount of discussion going on about who is really the most spiritual, the most fiery preacher. 
And I said, there are a number of people that get straight A's. They get on the dean's list. They're clear at the top. They have 4.0. But I imagine there's some saying, but do you know who is really the most brilliant? This one may get all A's, but they've got to work real hard. The one who really has the innate ability is. And you ought to have seen the heads. Wow. Well, Brother England, we can't get blessed on that. If you want us to get happy and get blessed, push another button. I'll try. Just hang in there. But I'm telling you that when this kind of thing happens, we really can't expect revival. Can't really expect it. How the devil is trying to separate brethren and bring divisions within the body of Christ. Brother French used to tell us that nothing should separate our fellowship one from another except sin. And I have a feeling in our day that we tend to justify some of our separations on the basis of difference of opinions. Not Bible. But of course, we all have our own way to interpret the Bible. But friend, let me tell you, and I'm speaking to my own heart tonight... Long tongues can do more damage in just a little while than one can do in years of labor for the Lord. It takes a long time to build up the work of God. A long wagging tongue can bring it down so fast. My good friend L.J. Cherry Holmes has gone home to heaven. I heard him from this platform when I was sitting where you're sitting and when he had a daughter in school here, she was married at the time. And he said one day he thought he would tell Joanne something. And then he said, would it do her any good if I told her? And he said, I decided it wouldn't. So I never said anything. That might help all of us, mightn't it? Will it do any good? John Fletcher had a very special method that might be helpful for all of us. That godly man that was Wesley's contemporary. If anybody came to Mr. Fletcher and said, did you hear about so-and-so and something awful had happened? Mr. Fletcher would say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. He said, let's pray for that person. And he would help them even kneel if they needed to and get down. And then he would say, you lead in prayer. I'd like to have been there on some occasions. I think some would have been stammering and stuttering and having a hard time getting to first base. What do you think? Mr. Finney said, the church is in need of revival when there's a worldly spirit in the church. A worldly spirit. Now, you don't have to be worldly outwardly to have a worldly spirit. You can look very old-fashioned, conservative, and have a worldly spirit. The Bible says, he that is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And God said, wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. But my friend, I think in our day there's a very subtle kind of worldliness that's called materialism. And it can get its tentacles around us. How few there are, like John Wesley and George Mueller, no matter what their income became, they said, we can live on this level, and that's good enough for us. Oh, 
we need revival when materialism becomes an important factor. Mr. Finney said as well, the church is in need of revival when sinners are dropping off into hell and they're going to hell unconcerned. My friend, hear me tonight. If sinners are going to hell and they're unconcerned, it's because the church is unconcerned about them. If sinners are not awakened, it's because the church is not awakened. Many years ago, probably 11 or 12 years ago, an organization at GBS, a student organization, invited attorney David Gibbs, a fine Baptist attorney, to come to our school and update us on what was happening in the Christian day school movement. He had represented a lot of Christian schools in court. God had used Mr. Gibbs in a very wonderful way. Uh, one of our former students came to introduce him, a godly man who has likewise taken his stand against government encroachment upon Christian education. And that night, as Mr. Gibbs got up to speak to us, somehow or other, he missed his cue. I mean, our student president made it clear what he wanted him to talk about, but when he got up, he said, I want to preach to you on holiness. <laughs> wow, did we have fire flying after that service. I remember a staff member too saying, why did you call a Baptist to preach on holiness? Well, we didn't. He wasn't supposed to be preaching on holiness. <laughs> he was a Baptist. Now, some had an awful time in it, but I, I kind of did like eating fish. I, I took everything that was good and enjoyed it. And he had a lot of good to share with us. He told us about a young lady that had just moved into his community in Cleveland, Ohio area, and she began attending the Baptist church that he, the attorney, attended. Not many knew her well. She hadn't been attending there long. She was working an afternoon shift, and she called her pastor in the middle of the week. It was Wednesday or Thursday when they had their prayer meeting service, and she said, Pastor, I'm working this afternoon. I cannot make it to the prayer meeting service, but I want you to promise me that you'll come in after prayer meeting tonight to the hospital. There's a man that I want you to talk to and pray with. I want you to promise me that you'll come in tonight. And the pastor said, I'll be there after service. He made his way in and came up to the floor where she was working and finally got in contact with her. She led him down the corridor and into a room and there lay a man under an oxygen tent. He had been sedated apparently with a lot of drugs and she walked over and I think she lifted the, lifted the oxygen tent up and uh, she began to speak to him. She tried to get his attention but his eyes eyes were closed. He seemed to be out of it. And she spoke a little louder and, and tears started to come down her face and she started slapping his face and tried to shake him and get him to be alert. And finally he opened his eyes and she introduced him to her pastor and he read some scripture to him and talked to him a little while and uh, had prayer with him. They left the room, come out, and were going down the corridor. He didn't know the young lady well. She had just started attending his church. And he said to her, Ma'am, this must be your father. She said, No, sir. He said, It must be an uncle then or someone that's very close to you. She said, No, sir. I've never met him till today. But when I came on the shift, I knew that he didn't have long for this old world. And I knew I had to help get him to God. Just a few days later, a student got up in one of my classes who was a nurse. 
Tears were coming down her face too. She said, Brother England, God's been dealing with my own heart about my lack of concern for never dying souls. She said, I, I don't have the same burden that Baptist girl had. Oh, my friend, they're falling over the precipice of time as we can count off the seconds. They're going into eternity. 132 of them in just a moment of time in that plane wreck just a few days ago. And if they're going to be concerned, we're going to have to be concerned. Never is the church bearing such a burden for the lost as when it's being revived. I must hurry. My text not only suggests the privation of revival, but also the possibility of revival in the prayer, wilt thou? I'm sure the psalmist believed God could give them revival. Do you believe God can still give revival in the latter part of this 20th century? I meet some people that seem to think the days of revival are over, but friend, the possibility for revival is great tonight because Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of revival is the same yesterday and today and forever. He can give revival. In the early part of the history of our nation when our pilgrim fathers came over, they tell us in the 1620s there was a high uh, degree of personal morality and spiritual tenor in our nation, in our young land at that time. But a century later, spiritual passion was gone and morality was at a low ebb. George Whitney Field came to New England in 1740 and preached to large crowds, up to 15,000 in the open air. Mr. Whitfield went from Boston up to Northampton uh, to Jonathan Edwards Church. Mr. Edwards said that George Whitfield addressed the professors of religion first of all. He said revival first appeared among the professors of religion. And then Mr. Whitfield turned his attention to the young people. Many of them thought that they were Christless and in a lost estate. Soon the conversations throughout town were turned to eternal things. They were talking about religious matters. The services became so fervent in those days. People loved to come for hours to sing and to pray. They were not in a hurry to go home. They tell us that from 1740 to 43, revival fires spread all over New England. Oh, I'd love to see that in Mount Auburn, wouldn't you? I'd like to see little communities inundated where the heavens were rent and God came down. They say you would have had a hard time finding a sinner in those days. Revival had come but let me remind each of us that the tendency of fire is to go out and by the time we come down to the end of the 1700s either revival fires had been extinguished or they were burning very low here and there but again, God's best people were stirred up. They said, we're not going to be satisfied to be perfunctory Christians. We're going to cry out to God for revival. The atheistic literature came in. Tom Paine's writings. Our colleges were inundated with it. And about this time, Timothy Dwight, a minister, was called to be the president of Yale College. The student body was far from being spiritual. They were taken up with skepticism and atheism. Reverend Dwight felt led of God to preach a series of messages exposing atheism and skepticism. God began to move on the campus. 
They formed what they called the Moral Society of Yale College to discourage profanity. God continued to move. And in 1802, he gave a mighty outpouring of his spirit. Large numbers of students were wonderfully converted. And one half of them dedicated their lives to the ministry. Thank God. Friend, we need revival if Christian service is to continue. In the year 1857, in the hot month of July, a quiet, zealous businessman named Jeremiah Lanfear of New York City took upon himself the personal responsibility to do missionary work in downtown New York. He wasn't a preacher. He was reserved and backward. He was a man of prayer, a good singer, had lots of common sense. And thus he secured the use of a little third floor room in an old Dutch Reformed church for a weekly noonday prayer meeting. He had a little handbill made up and printed for advertising the prayer meeting. The question was asked on the handbill, how often shall I pray? And then it went on to say that a noonday prayer meeting was being held for businessmen and others who would come to meet with God. The day was set for September about this time of the year. It was to be held at noon in that little room up on the third floor of the old Dutch Reformed Church. Mr. Lanfear was there early but he was the only one there at noon. Five minutes went past and then 10 and 15 and no one else was there. He must have been a little discouraged, 20 after and 25 after. But at 12.30, one came in and then two and three and four and finally up to six people. The next week, they had 20 people out. The following week, there were 40. They had to open up two and three rooms. They turned it into a daily prayer meeting. Think of it, businessmen giving up their lunches to come and pray and seek God for revival. They tell us that those, those prayer meetings spread all over New York and like wildfire went to Boston and Philadelphia and there was scarcely a town in the U.S. in 1857 where there wasn't a noonday prayer meeting. Thank God. Friend, out of those prayer meetings, there were a million converts that came into the churches. Now, we don't have the same prayer meeting going on, but we've got a noonday prayer meeting here at GBS. It's on every day, Monday to Friday, in the Mom White Room. I know that some may say, well, we don't know if much will come of that. But I tell you what, if you'll join in, it might surprise you what could take place. Come and see what God can do. We need to give ourselves to prayer. My friend, my text not only speaks of the privation of revival and the possibility of revival, but also about the purpose of of revival. The psalmist prayed, Lord, wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Someone has said it like this, if our joy is running low, we need revival. If revival will do anything for us, it will restore our joy. Praise the Lord. Revival brings joy unspeakable to God's people. Thank the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Paul wrote to the church at Rome. There are a lot of people that seem to think it is. You can get more people out for a prayer breakfast than you can a noonday prayer meeting. Are you still out there? 
Easier to get people to a Sunday school picnic than to an all-night prayer meeting. The kingdom of heaven is not meat and drink, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Thank God forever. There was such a gracious visitation of God at Samaria under the ministry of Philip that Luke records there was great joy in the city. I'll tell you what made me hungry as an unsaved boy from an unsaved home. It was the glory of God on the countenances of his people who were revived. Oh, those old times pilgrims were just filled again and again and again to overflowing. They would run the aisles. They would shout and their faces would just shine. I tell you that's the best advertisement I know of for holiness. Shining countenances, filled hearts that are overflowing. Praise the Lord forever. Joel said the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up and all the trees of the field are perished withered because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Friend, God wants to restore our joy and make it greater than it's been. Revive us again, O oh God. I think my text finally suggests the price of revival. I believe it's bound up in the text, though not directly stated. I think the price that must be paid to have an old-time revival is simply a total abandonment to God. A full, total abandonment. The psalmist is praying, Wilt thou not revive us again? Do you think the psalmist had any doubt about what God could do? I don't think so. And any of us that have served him any length of time, we're sure that God can do anything but fail. We know he has the power. He is the God of revival. There was a time in my young experience where I might have been made to easily doubt whether God could do this or that. But I, I have not struggled that way for a long, long time. I have no question in my mind but what God is able to do, the impossible with man. But where I have to really struggle and come down before God is at this point. I know we must have the help of the Holy Spirit if we're going to have revival, but let me suggest to you, I must be thoroughly willing, I must be thoroughly willing on my part to allow the Holy Spirit to have his unhindered right of way if I'm going to have revival. And you've got to be willing to let him work in whatever way he wants to work. A number of years ago, a camp meeting was in progress. It was a hard camp. The evangelist said that it just seemed like everything tightened up, and that happens sometimes in revivals and in camp meetings. The devil tries to tie it up, and then if people cooperate with the devil, you can really get things tied up pretty tight. And nothing was happening, nothing was moving. There was only one evangelist. He got so discouraged, he said that he thought the best thing he could do was leave the camp. Maybe they could do better without preaching than with it because nothing was happening. He didn't say anything to anyone, but he packed his bags and started walking across the grounds to leave the camp. One of the men, apparently a board member, saw him and thought it was strange that he was carrying his luggage. It's not unusual for the evangelist to go downtown and buy toothpaste or something to drink, but you don't take your luggage when you do that. And so he asked him what was happening. 
And he said, I've decided to leave the camp. He said, you can't do that. By then, some others gathered around, maybe two or three other board members. And they said, we called you here to be the evangelist. You can't leave. You've got to stay. He looked at them, and he finally said, I'll be willing to stay on just one condition, just one condition. They said, tell us what it is. He said, I'll stay for the remaining of the camp if you'll promise me, if you'll promise me that you won't put the brakes on the truth and you won't grieve the Holy Ghost. Will you promise that? They said, we will. I probably don't have to tell you that man hardly got an opportunity to preach in the rest of the camp. They simply saw that if God was going to come, he wasn't going to just send lightning bolts out of the sky, but as individuals, they were going to have to say, Lord, thou art the potter and I'm the clay. You can do with me anything you want. Friend, I'm confident tonight that the Lord wants to give us special help in this revival meeting at the beginning of the year. I believe he wants to do gracious things for us, and I believe he's going to do that if we will but make room for him. Let's be a committee of one to tell him that we're going to mind God. We're going to do what he bids us to do. We're going to keep our hearts open. We're going to pray. We're going to mind him. Can you say amen to that? Thank God. Wilt thou not revive us again, O God? that thy people may rejoice in thee. Let's stand together, please. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't want to lose the